A reading from Exodus. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to him, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and my title for all generations. The word of the Lord. God. Reading from Romans. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering and persevere in, in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than what you are. Do not repay anyone, anyone evil for evil, but take thought what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. 
I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. And then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will a profit if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what he has, has been done. Truly I tell you, There are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The Gospel of the Lord. It's almost difficult to talk about, it's just difficult, frankly, to talk about much this morning, isn't it? Um, Especially it's difficult to, to talk about this reading without having in mind the reading we missed last week. This is the famous reading where Jesus takes the disciples together to Caesar Caesarea Philippi and says, who do people say I am? And the response is, well, some say you're a prophet and some say you're Jeremiah. And Jesus says, this is really the question central to every gospel. It falls dead in the middle of Matthew's gospel, even more so in Mark. Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Right? In some ways, each gospel beckons each of us to answer that question for ourselves. Who do we say Jesus is? And Peter is the one last week who says, well, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, hey, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because you didn't get this idea on your own. It was revealed to you by God. And I tell you, you're not going to be called Simon anymore. Now I'll call you Peter, Petros. And on this rock, I'll build my church. Maybe you've heard this before, right? This is where we get the idea of the apostolic succession. This is why people lay hands on one another, right? Bishops are consecrated by the laying on of hands with the idea that that goes all the way back to Jesus doing this on Peter. It's a lovely image. You know, what's interesting, though, is that um, linguistically it doesn't work just quite like that. It turns out that Jesus says, you are Peter, Petros, that's masculine. And then he goes on to say, and on this rock, on this Petra, feminine, I will build my ecclesia, my gathering. Uh, In Greek, the genders change. So it's unlikely Jesus is talking about building the gathering, the church, on Peter, it's much more likely that the rock Jesus is referring to is the revelation from God that Peter had. I want you to think about that. This makes sense to us, right? God is building a gathering in a church on continual revelation, not on a single human being. And the evidence for that is, look what happens this week. Jesus says, 
this is what's going to happen to me. And Petros says, never, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? Because in that moment, Peter has gone back to being himself instead of being connected with God's revelation. And Jesus has this injunction, which is, if we'd really like to follow, in some ways we have to put down some of our own nifty ideas in order to be open to where God is leading us. And Jesus uses a really stark image for that. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, I don't think he means wear a necklace, because if that's all it took, we'd be really good at that, don't, don't you think? Um, it would be much simpler. No, actually, what Jesus is saying is a little bit <coughs> difficult to hear then and now. Um, the only people who were crucified at the time of Jesus, first of all, were poor people. Rich people had their heads cut off. Crucifixion was a grisly grisly punishment reserved only for people of lower means without social connections and people who had committed treason treason against the empire the roman government uh, crucifixion took days to kill somebody and it happened outside of the city and always there was a placard above the person's head which basically said mess with rome and this is what happens to you the earliest billboards. If you steal something, you get your hand cut off. When you try to defy Rome, that is when you get crucified. Last week, we missed in the readings of Exodus the kind of people who took up their cross, and you know this story. If you've seen the Ten Commandments of the Prince of Egypt or, or Gods and Kings or any of these other um, Hollywood renditions of the, of the Moses story and the Exodus story. There's a problem in Egypt. Pharaoh looks and sees that all of the Hebrew people have more land and freedom than the Egyptian people. That's how Joseph set it up. Pharaoh decides to enslave them so that they don't overthrow the Egyptians one day. And then Pharaoh decides that that's still not working, so they need to kill all of the baby boys. And Pharaoh commissions two midwives to go and kill the baby boys as they're being born. The midwives do something called civil disobedience. They go, and they don't do it. <laughs> they go, and they deliver the children, and then they come back and tell Pharaoh, well, it's not our fault. Those Hebrew women, they're really strong, and they have babies before we can get there. Interestingly enough, Pharaoh doesn't punish them. Then Pharaoh commands that all the baby boys will be thrown into the Nile and drowned by his soldiers. I don't think Moses' parents were the only one who held their child back. That would be crazy to think. Moses escapes, but uh, you know the way he escapes is that they float him down the Nile on a basket and it is Pharaoh's own sister who pulls him out. That's called civil disobedience. <laughs> That's called listening to revelation instead of a rock based on a human being. And that's also called taking up your cross because when you do those things, you've committed treason and sedition against the emperor. The penalty for that is death. 
Pharaoh doesn't kill his sister. Instead, as far as we know, his sister raises Moses in the palace. There's a lot of intrigue about was Moses going to be the prince of Egypt? Uh, interesting to ponder. What Moses does himself as an adult is decides to commit treason against Pharaoh. One day, he sees an Egyptian whipping a Hebrew, and he says, stop it, and the Egyptian doesn't, so Moses takes the law into his own hands and kills the Egyptian. That's called civil disobedience. No, no, that, that's actually called manslaughter. Uh, Moses does this, and then he flees. He flees because he saw, I think, he was unable by himself to overturn a power. The Bible uses these words, power, and and sometimes we think that means something like a demon or or a gargoyle-ish thing with a spade tail and horns or or the devil. Power is this word the Bible uses that is actually really quite good. Um, If you think about it, it's very imaginative. It's one of those things that we cannot on our own overturn, no matter how wrong it is, no matter how much it is prevalent in our society, no one person, maybe even no one group of people are able to overturn a power like slavery and oppression and domination. No one person can say, that's over. We all know this. There's no way even the Supreme Court can overturn these things. There's no way that you can make a law that says racism will never happen anymore. You can make that law, but can we legislate people's hearts? Do you know what I'm saying? Those things that we're not able to even legislate that still happen in our world The Bible uses the word power for those things, principalities. Sometimes the Bible even uses the word Satan for those things. So Moses can't do it. And now he's fled and he's keeping sheep and he sees a natural disaster. Burning bushes are not a natural disaster in Houston, but they are in California. That's where I came from. Rain, not so much. Well, actually rain is a disaster there too. California has lots. (laughs) Um, The problem with a burning bush is it starts a fire, right? And the fire spreads and blows and then pretty much the county is um, in flames. Moses looks up and sees this bush burning and of course we don't know how many times he has to look at it. Um, The miracle is he's seen lots of burning bushes before. This happens in dry places. But the bush keeps burning. That's the strange thing. You know, you'd think it would burn up quickly and be done. This is Moses' experience. And what's interesting is Moses at least pays attention. Um, Some of the rabbis wonder how many years God had been burning bushes before somebody finally paid attention. Moses goes to the bush, and there's this very curious bit. God's in the bush. And Moses is afraid to look at God, and the first thing the bush says is, take your shoes off. Nobody knows why the bush tells Moses, why God tells Moses first thing to take his shoes off. They're not inside, after all, and what's wrong with wearing shoes? Uh, If you don't wear them, the ground's rocky and thorny, and there's problems like that. 
A lot of people say that you take your shoes off because um, you don't want to have dirt. But the, again, they're standing on the dirt, and it's not even a house rule, because back then, uh, houses had dirt floors. It wasn't about dirt. Some people say, uh, well, the dirt in the field when you're a shepherd has sheep droppings in it, and that dirt you don't want in your house dirt. So you take your shoes off. Maybe. I think this is about, though, the same thing Jesus is talking about. I think in a very primordial way, this is God saying, this place is special, and we're getting ready to have a connection parentheses, whether you want it or not. And in order for that connection to work right, there can't be anything between us. So this ground is holy, and this ground is sacred. So take off the barriers between you and the sacred. Take your shoes off so we can be connected with each other. Put your defenses down. There won't be any thorns or brambles with me, Moses. Go ahead and take those things off. Go ahead and stand here on the soles of your feet and let's have an encounter, the kind that I will continue to build my church on, whether through people named Simon or Moses or you. Moses has a great question, doesn't he? That's great and all, but who are you? Who are you? See, we think what's your name means something different. In Hebrew, what's your name means who are you. Your name is your identity. Moses means drawn out because he was drawn out of the water. But of course, that's who Moses is, the one who draws the people out. And so who are you, God? And God replies with this very interesting thing. If you're Jewish, this is a word that you don't say. If you're Jewish, this is a word that if you write, the thing upon which you've written it becomes sacred. If you've ever been to a synagogue and seen uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters don't touch the scrolls with their hands because God's name is written on the scroll and that would defile the scroll and it would defile their hands. You know, they use a pointer that has a hand on it. It's made out of silver. It's called a yod. That's so they don't touch it. And they don't touch the scrolls because they're on rollers. So they don't have to touch it. When scrolls get old, they don't throw them away. They burn them or they bury them. This is how we found some of the oldest copies of the Hebrew Bible. They're in Bible graveyards where people buried old scrolls, all because of this word that many of you have probably heard starts with a Y in English. Doesn't sound like we think. Actually, nobody knows how it sounds. Um, rabbis say when you say it right, um, then the world ends. This is sort of that apocalyptic thing that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, whatever we think this sounds like, the rabbis are pretty sure, though, that it sounds like a breath, sort of like a, yeah. 
In Hebrew, it's the verb to be, which is interesting because in the Hebrew language, you can't write the verb. You'd be writing God's name. So just so you know, in Hebrew, if you want to say, we are in church, you write, we in church. And the verb's implied. Because if you wrote the verb in, you'd be writing God's name and you'd be defiling yourself in the page. That's how serious this continues to be to this day. This particular word, it sounds like a breath. And the rabbis are really good, I mean really good. They say, when God creates a human being out of the soil, sort of like a clay figure, according to Genesis 2, that's when God breathes the breath of life in the clay and it moves. The rabbis say this is what God does. Makes the clay and then goes, and says God's own name into the human being. And the human being becomes alive. And the rabbis say the first thing that a baby says upon coming into the world is the thing that makes them alive. It's God's name, sometimes really loud. (laughs) And the rabbis say the last thing we do, the last thing we do, is we say God's name And when it leaves us, we die. It's really, really a strong image, isn't it? A strong image that's not just arcane, an image that's saying that God's presence is what's keeping us alive right now, whether we know it or not. It's an image I think that saying that God's revelation is what's keeping us alive right now. It's an image, I think, that's saying that God's revelation is not just for Simon and for Moses, but it is something you're breathing right now with me. It's an image that says that on that rock, God's own breath of life, God will build a church a gathering that will prevail as we hear in other texts against the gates of hell. Even if they're made out of water. And those are the gates we stand at right now, aren't they? What does it mean for us to take up our cross right now? I don't, I don't, I'm not going to pretend to know the answer to that. I'm not sure that giving to other people is countercultural or treasonous, especially right now. <laughs> Although, I am pretty sure that's what's required of us is nuancing that in certain ways. The things that we're going to see glorified, and they're, they're important. We glorify them for good reason. Are people offering help at the expense of even their own lives. You know, people who get on boats and go pick people up on houses, um, especially people who drown doing that. Those are the stories that we're going to read, and of course, those are acts of heroism. They are. I think what's important for us to remember is that sharing compassion, however we do it, is an act of heroism. That the people who came yesterday and set up a funeral for Greta Kaltenbach were heroes. The people who put on a reception for the guests at that funeral 
were heroes. The people who put, cleaned out their closets and gave clothes to somebody, even if they weren't sure they really wanted to keep the clothes. Those are acts of heroism. Without all of those things, none of this would work. So maybe part of what we have to do that's countercultural is be grateful for all the things that are being done and remind ourselves that God doesn't just work in us risking our lives. God works in us sharing our things. Or maybe put a different way, it's not about risking our life, it's about sharing our life. That's the difference between a hero and a non-hero, is that heroes share their lives, or their things, or their resources, or their time, or their thoughts. I think there's some other things we can do that in some ways are countercultural. You're gonna hear, and maybe you've said the phrase, survivor's guilt. Many of us have that, but we don't have that. I would encourage you not to have survivor's guilt. I want you to have survivor's compassion. Guilt is not life-giving and compassion is. If we've survived, and most of us have, thanks be to God we have the resources to share with people who don't. That's not guilt, that's compassion. And that's countercultural. <laughs> and the world needs it desperately right now. And it's okay for us to be grateful that we've survived. I'm grateful that the water stopped four inches from my house. I'm grateful. And I should be. I should be. I think it's extremely countercultural for us who feel like very little wrong happened to us this week for us to be allowed to grieve, for us to be allowed to say, I was terrified. I was alone in my house with my two kids and the creek was four inches from my door and I woke up every 30 minutes to look and see if it was coming in and my house didn't flood. But I was surprised <laughs> when we had the Eucharist on Wednesday night how much grief and fear there was in me whose house did not get wet. But it was there. Because it could have happened. And what would I have done with my children? I guess we'd have mucked our house out. It doesn't make it unreal that I didn't have to. The same for you doesn't make it unreal if you didn't have to muck your house out that it really could have happened to you. Remember, it's okay to have grief and to have gratitude at the same time. The call is that we do those things, we have those things, and we go for it compassionately. I guess there's only one other thing to say, and probably most of what I've said is wrong anyway, other than what I had to say about the Bible. <laughs> I think that stuff's right. Um, we all know this, that um, the rest of the country, particularly 
uh, I've, I've already read some, some comments made, you know, that, that when these disasters happen, there's a sprint of, oh, I guess we call it rescue. You know, there's a sprint to get people out of houses where they're trapped with water, you know. And then, well, we did that, so life's going to go on, and, and, and we all know. I mean, there's people who haven't really recovered from Ike, and that had been nine years ago. I mean, there, there were people in this neighborhood waiting to lift their homes from Ike, and they just got the permits, and the homes flooded again, right? I mean, that's been nine years. You know even better than I do that this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. Or maybe it's more than a marathon. Maybe it's one of those ultra... 500-mile running races where you run for days and days and days. You know, and I almost think there's something countercultural for us to consider that there's rescue and there's relief and there's restoration and that restoration doesn't mean helping people until we say we're done. <laughs> restoration is when we help people until they say they're done. It's a really different concept, isn't it? That the people we're partnering with get to tell us when they've had enough instead of we get to tell them we've, we've done enough. Maybe I should have kept all those ones to myself. But what I am positive of is this. This is a parish that created the space program. This is a parish full of chemical engineers and brilliant minds who have done so much. And this is a parish that is called to use that same ingenuity and creativity and perseverance to accompany the people of Houston and Clear Lake. We can send people to the moon. We can accompany people in this community right now through rescue and relief and restoration. We can do that. And I think these texts today are trying to tell us God is in the very air we breathe to breathe it in and to breathe it out. To breathe it out on people who are desperately in need that on that rock of revelation of coming together as a community and going forward, that's where God's going to build the church. You're already doing it through collections, through helping people out, through ICM, through giving out those bags. Those are the works that you're already doing that we're being called to continue. And on those rocks, God will build the church. And let's be found ready to continue to build with God.